Please turn with me in your scriptures to read in uh, Isaiah 63 and uh, 64. Isaiah 63 from verse 15 and then into 64 to the end of the chapter. Let us hear the word of God. Look down from heaven and see from your holy habitation and beautiful habitation Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rises himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Amen. May the Lord instruct us and guide us from his most holy word. The Scripture's story is a story of God's choosing and calling to a task and man's repeated failure. It's a story of God's mercy in the midst of man's misery. It's a story of God's sovereign act 
of saving sinners. There is no story like God's story. History, of course, is His story. And we know this story began in the garden with that single man and woman and the task and the failure and God's covering provision Yet, nonetheless, the consequences of sin, they were evicted from the garden. The story of the Scriptures continues with, again, God's choice, a single person of Abraham from whom will come a nation. And again, there's failure. And God's covering provision, but nonetheless, consequences, eviction. The story culminates in the single person, Jesus, who is our covering. The covering for Jew and Gentile. The only one who can save us from our sins. The promise is of a land yet to come. Not the physical land, but a land yet to come from which we will never be evicted again. Revelation 21, God making His dwelling with us. They shall be my people, I will be their God. So we have in this story Adam, the garden, the the eviction. We have Israel, the land, the eviction. We have Jew and Gentile, and the one who fulfilled everything, Jesus, and the land that is to come. All of these pictures are part of God's divine drama of history. What I want to say that, and why I'm saying that by way of introduction, is that we need to be careful that we don't take a role for ourselves that is for someone else. We don't take Jesus' role. Jesus is the righteous one. Christ, our righteousness. We don't present our righteous deeds before God. He is the one who presents righteousness. He has entered that heavenly tabernacle on our behalf. We do not take Jesus' role. We do not take the Jews' role either. One of the concerns I have is when Gentiles start to dress up as Jews. I have a Jewish friend in Arkansas that simply says to me, don't do that. You guys are Gentiles. We're Jews. Don't play act the Jew. Another thing that concerns me is when we believe, and in the ultimate sense, there are some who believe that the church has replaced Israel. In other words, that God has no further purposes for the Jewish people. I want to say that we have not replaced, but rather we have been brought into the olive tree of Israel And we can take the Scriptures as ours. We can take these passages in Psalm 67 that we sang earlier, or this passage in Isaiah 63 and 64. We can take them. We can enjoy the wonderful promises that are found therein. But I want us to see the original context, as we did in in Psalm 67. Because I think sometimes the church has been guilty of verse-stealing. We can buy into this. We can take by extension the application. But some of the things that are there are for the Jewish people. 
You remember Jesus speaking to the Syrophoenician woman, the Gentile. What Jesus said was almost racist. In fact, probably by our own standard of understanding, his words were racist. Do you remember what he said to her? She wanted some of these things. She pleaded with him, and he said to her, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Now, was Jesus playing with her? No, he wasn't. He spoke truth. What was the truth? Well, there are children, and there is bread, and there are dogs. And she knew exactly what he meant. The children were the children of Israel. The bread was the wonderful gospel promises, the kingdom promises. And the dogs were the Gentiles. She knew exactly. And she pleaded yet further, but, but Lord, don't the dogs get the scraps? And he said, yes. In fact, you're being invited to the very table. But the truth was mere clear. There were the children, and there was bread, and there were dogs. But you know that if the children leave a full table, if you've got a dog in the house, you don't leave a table of food. If there's a dog in the house, that dog will be up on the table. And the wonderful gospel story is that to us Gentiles, to us unclean goyim, we have enjoyed the fullest affair of the Jewish children's bread. Again, this is a lengthy introduction, but all that, as we come to look at Isaiah 63 and 4, let's see the original context, let's apply it to the Jewish people then and today, and then we can buy into it and join the chorus. It was, it is, a prayer of the captives. It is a cry of impotence laying hold of omnipotence. It is a cry then of believing Jews for their unbelieving Jewish neighbors. And I want us to join with our Jewish believing friends today in this cry for Jewish unbelievers. I hope that is an acceptable hermeneutic and application. Three points you have in front of you. Let me work through them as quickly as we can. Chapter 63, let's just focus in a couple of verses. Look at verse 15. Chapter 63, verse 15. Look, see, where are your zeal and your might? Verse 16. You are our Father, our Redeemer from of old. 17. Why do you make us wander and harden our heart? 18. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. 19. We have become like unruled, like uncalled. These verses are a challenge to the power of God. These are, these are mighty strong arguments from the believers of Israel then for their unbelieving fellow Jews. And they are pleading with the Lord of heaven and earth. And they are challenging heaven. A challenge to the power of God. As we have said, there are consequences of sin. And in Isaiah's day, the consequences was disaster. It was eviction. But the plea was made in the midst of God's love and God's covenant. You are our Father. You are our Redeemer. It's your sanctuary that has been trampled. Look at this mess, Lord. 
these Jewish believers were praying. It's as if we are not yours. It's as if we are not under your rule. We know the story of the book. This people were a blessed, chosen people. But look at how they challenge God. You, you have made us wonder. You have made us wonder. What, what boldness in their argument. Now they know they're responsible for their own sin. But you have made us wonder. You have hardened the heart. They're not letting themselves off the hook in terms of responsibility, but they are actually challenging God concerning the sovereign, divine drama. You have done this. God has permissively permitted such things. He has not ordained sin, but they have experienced a hardening. So too today. Romans 11 speaks of the Jewish people today having experienced a partial hardening. Are they responsible for that? Yes. They have stubbornly refused to believe in Jesus. We will not believe in Jesus. They will do, they will believe a ton of things. They will believe there is no God. There can be atheist Jews. There can be Buddhist Jews. There can be New Age Jews. There can be all kinds of Jews. They will believe anything, but not Jesus. And they're responsible for that. But also in the sovereign mysterious purposes of God, they have experienced a hardening. And so here, they are challenging God and they're saying, God, You have hardened us. This is not Your ultimate design, Lord. You are our Redeemer. Your sanctuary is defiled. Look at this mass, Lord. I want us, by way of application, to pray and join the chorus of this challenge to God. Don't forget this particular people of His love. A remnant who pleaded then. Who are pleading today? I was sharing in the Sunday school hour. 20,000 Jewish believers in Jesus in the land of Israel today. 20,000 of your brothers and sisters and mine in about 120 little congregations. They're pleading this prayer. They're praying for their Jewish unbelieving neighbors. Lord, Abram wouldn't hardly know us. They're, they're atheists. They're, they're engaging in all kinds of licentious lifestyle. They don't know you, Lord. They're praying that. Can we join this chorus? Can we join with our brothers and sisters in this bold challenge to God? I don't know if you've ever been to synagogue if you ever attend, be prepared for a lengthy service and one perhaps that will be incredibly boring as I have experienced. But they have so much stuff around them. Romans 3 says, to what advantage has the Jew? Much. Yes, they have much. Because as you see in the synagogue, they have the oracles of God. They have the Torah in all fancy ornate scrolls. They have the oracles of God. They don't know the content. They don't know what's in them. And the state of the Jewish people today is as Isaiah 63. They are wandering. They are hardened against the true redemption in Jesus. It is as if God never ruled them. They live in constant fear of rabbinic rules. Not God's rules, really. They bear little resemblance to Israel of old. I was visiting in London, knocking doors in London with some of our missionary friends. 
came to this Jewish house and a lady opened the door. She started a conversation with us. We were chatting for about 40 minutes. And eventually she said, Now who is it that believes the Messiah has come? Is it you or us? She didn't know. Didn't know anything really about their own... They, they, we are like become those over whom you have never ruled. Like those who are not called by your name. Abraham wouldn't, wouldn't know us would be true of the Jews today. And yet, they make this challenge. They make this plea. God, You are our Father. You are our Redeemer. We are the tribes of Your heritage. Return! Verse 17. When did you last pray for the Jewish people in chorus with Jewish believers today? With Jewish believers of Isaiah's day. Let's pray this challenge concerning the power of God. But then let's move on to a call for the presence of God. They call down the presence of God. God, look at the dire situation. Look at the mess we are in. And so, it really it's summarized under two headings. Come down and save us. Verse 1 and verse 5. Come down and save us. Rend the heavens. Make the mountains quake like fire kindling brushwood. Do those, do those awesome things. This, this is a, a call for God to be God. Into time and history break in in a mighty way. Make your name known. No one has seen a God like you who acts for those who wait for Him. Israel's life, Israel's history has been really God came down. That could be the summary of Israel's life. Egypt, the Exodus, God came down. Jordan, Jericho, God came down. You learn your history of the people of Israel. It's a divine drama of God coming down. And so into the misery and mess of their failure, God acts on behalf of those who wait for Him. And so, in the midst of this, there is this cry. God, we're not completely done. The failure isn't final. The captivity would be a time of cleansing. Their dispersion, their eviction would be among the nations. And that would be the very means that God would use to cleanse and make His name known among the nations even. Very briefly, turn back with me to Psalm 126. Psalm 126. Just, just a brief reading, a couple of opening verses. Because this is the context of God's return of them from exile. And there they're singing some amazing things. Psalm 126, verses 1 to 3. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, when He brought us back, we were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. But notice this, then they said among the nations, oh, these goyim, unclean nations, were looking at what God had done to the Jewish people then, and were saying, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. We're laughing. We're dreaming, they were saying. 
And even the nations know that God has acted. And so here, in Isaiah, they're praying for this. They're praying, God, come down. Fire upon brushwood consumes it. Water being caused to boil converts it. They're basically saying, come down, Lord. Consume us. Convert us. Save us. Save us. Verse 5. We have sinned. A long time we have sinned. Shall we be saved? So the, the challenge to the power of God moves then to a call for His presence. But I want you to notice there's no presumption. We're sinners, they're saying. We're done for. Shall we be saved? They knew their sin. It's, it's like a menstrual cloth. Verse 6. We are unclean. The whole nation is leprous, stained. We are like a dry fall leaf blowing in the wind. There's no presumption here. This is no entitlement culture here. This is no expectation here of having their best life now. They were sinners. They knew it. God had withdrawn. God had given them up to the consequences of their own sin. But they are calling, please, shall we be saved? Come down, Lord. Save us, Lord. So, by way of application, I want to ask you to elevate our prayers. Let's call for the presence of God to come down. I've been in so, so many prayer meetings. How petty are our prayer meetings. I've been in prayer meetings that just resemble the wishful thinkings of a doctor's waiting room. Endless lists of medical infirmities that we want God to sort out. Now please, don't misunderstand me. He, he's not unmindful of our diseases. He knows how we're formed. He remembers we are dust. But please, dear friends, remember... We have been granted access to the command and control center of the cosmos. We have a boldness of approach to the one who sustains every moment of every micron. We can come in prayer to a meeting with the general and we're asking him to do some little petty things. Medical issues fill our prayers. And I fear, I fear we have succumbed to a Joel Osteen mindset. In many of our churches, perhaps there's more of that mindset than we care to admit. There are bigger requests to be heard. There are bigger issues to bring before the King. Come down, Lord! There are large prayers. Do awesome things, Lord, in our midst, in the mass of this world. Make Your name known. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Make every day a Friday. What do we pray for? Larger Catechism, question 191. We pray 
that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. What is our policy towards the diabolical, murderous mania that is in some parts of our world today with murder akin to the Nazi regime? What is our response to that? Lord, break in and deal a death blow to those who love death. The kingdom of sin. That's a kingdom of Satan. Deal with it, Lord. That the gospel may be propagated throughout the world. Oh, Lord, build your church. That the Jews may be called, larger catechism, question 191. Make that part of your praying. Oh, Lord, this ancient people that have been in their sins so long, the Jews, call them, Lord, by Your grace. And the fullness of the Gentiles, may that be brought in. This prayer, particularly as I'm thinking of the Jewish people, this prayer was part of our Westminster standards. And it was that burden, as I shared in the Sunday School hour, that, that drove four of Scotland's finest to the Holy Land in 1839. They came back and they preached and they burdened the church nationwide to, to remember the Jewish people and to pray and to labor with gospel urgency for the Jews to be grafted in again. Your kingdom come and part of your kingdom come is that the Jews would be grafted in. Come down, Lord. The believing Jews are praying it then, today. Let's join them. Come down, Lord. Save us. We have been grafted into the olive tree. Join the chorus. We've been in our sins a long time. They sure have. There's no real calling in the name of the Lord. If you've been at a synagogue, it's, it's, it's going through motions. Save us. This is Paul's prayer in Romans 10.1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. That's what Paul prays in Romans 10. And again, as I come to the U.S., I find so much energy, even so much dollar, wanting to bless Israel. But it's going in all the wrong directions, in all the wrong places. My heart's desire and prayer to God. Oh, well, let's stand with Israel, and let's buy a tree, and let's get them all back to the land, and let's buy matzah for them. See how pathetic it is? They don't need matzah. They need the Messiah. They need Jesus. Save them. Call. Cry out in this prayer for the presence of God to come upon the dry bones of the house of Israel. I must conclude. A challenge to the power of God. A call for the presence of God. A cry for the purposes of God. And there is this appeal, even as the remnant people of God, the Jewish believers then and today, and there is an appeal concerning the place of God. It's, a, it's really an appeal for, for a restored Eden. Adam and the Adamah, Adam and the land, the garden, walking with God. Israel and the promised land in vital worship. Of course, it transcends that, doesn't it? 
Because a time is coming, not on this mountain, but by the indwelt Spirit of God. He comes down. He tabernacles in the hearts of Jew and Gentile. But this is a cry, as we conclude, for the purposes of God to be fulfilled. You are our Father, verse 8. You are our potter. Verse 9, we are all your people. Remember that now in the context of this wider, there's the remnant, but there's also unbelieving Israel as well. And, and he's, he's making that plea. We are all your people. There is a, a people of God, the Jewish people, and God isn't done with them. They are loved for the Father's sakes, Romans eleven twenty eight. They are enemies on the kind of the gospel. They don't know Christ. But same verse, they are loved for the Father's sakes. And there are pleasant places, verse 11, where our fathers praised you. What's going on in the land of Israel today? It's a pagan land. There's godlessness. about. You can have a gay pride march in Israel. You can have all kinds of stuff going on in the land of Israel. These pleasant places where our fathers praised you. Again, no presumption. Will you restrain? Will you keep silent? They, they, they have that question. Lord, we don't deserve it. We deserve the eviction. We deserve your desertion from us. But, but will, you? will you? Will you restrain yourself? This is not how it should be, Lord. This is not how it ends. You have purposes for us, Lord. You have unfulfilled promises for us, Lord. Promises which, according to Romans 11, are irrevocable. They cannot be revoked. God has unfulfilled purposes for the Jewish people. That's what Paul makes his appeal in Romans 11 to. And so I simply want to say that we need to join the chorus in terms of challenging the power of God, crying for the presence of God, and then crying through this purpose, God's unfulfilled purpose. The pleasant places. Well, there is growth. And again, I shared it earlier. In the land of Israel, the number of Jewish believers has grown from 12 in 1948 to 20,000 today. There is worship of Yeshua, of Jesus, among Jewish believers. The wilderness is becoming fertile again. God in His grace and mercy is softening the hard hearts. God in His grace and mercy is taking the veil away. And so this cry, this, this, this appeal is, Lord, will, will you restrain yourself? Will you keep silent and afflict us so, so terribly, Lord? No. Because he's, he's going to pour out a spirit of supplication. He will cleanse. He will give a new heart. He will move them to follow His laws spiritually. Because this is the irrevocable purposes of God for the Jewish people. And we Gentiles here are privileged to join the chorus and pray through these ancient purposes. Graft them in again, O Lord. Again, I shared earlier, I was privileged to have McShane's Bible in my hand a few years ago and I looked over Romans 11 and he had underscored a certain verse. God is able to graft them in again. 
Robert Murray McShane believed that. He had it on his heart. He preached it. And so do we. God is able to graft them in again. Closing illustration. You remember Joseph and his brothers. And you remember how Joseph and his brothers, when they came for food, for a time he was hidden from them. And they came to him. And they, they were parched. They were, they were like a, a fall leaf faded. They came to him. They didn't know him, but they came to him. They were in their sins a long time, but they pleaded to this second in command to Pharaoh. And then Joseph couldn't restrain himself any longer. With weeping, he revealed himself to them. You remember that very very poignant moment in the story of Joseph when he, he reveals himself to his brothers. He, he just breaks down. He's weeping. And he says, It's me. It's Joseph. I'm your brother. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. To the saving of many. Of course, Joseph is a type of Jesus, isn't he? His Jewish brothers, Jesus' Jewish brothers, don't know him. But when in divine providence he reveals himself, when he grafts in again the natural branches, when he takes the veil away, what is he doing? Well, he's saying, It's me. I'm your Messiah. It's Jesus. I'm your Jewish brother. With weeping, even. Will you restrain yourself any longer, Lord? Lord, will Jesus restrain himself any longer from showing himself to his Jewish brothers? It's me. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. For the saving of many lives. Even, even, even in Biloxi 2,000 years later. My friends, pray for the power of God, for the presence of God, and the purposes of God to the Jew and this broken, messed up Gentile world. Amen.